Welcome to Pacific Mammal Research's Marine Mammal Highlight Series. We are a 501c3 research and education nonprofit studying marine mammals in the Salish Sea off Washington State. In this series, you will learn about different marine mammals as we discuss interesting facts about each species. This is our way to geek out, share some information, and have some fun. We hope you enjoy the series and be sure to follow us on Instagram to vote for which animal we talk about next. And without further ado, Welcome to the Pac-Man Podcast. I'm Cindy. And I'm Kat. And this week is a marine mammal highlight. And uh, it was a close one. It was between the pantropical spotted dolphin and the Waddell seal. And the poor Waddell seal has lost again. Um, <laughs> he'd been up before, or they've been up before. Um, but uh, the pantropical one, just barely uh, 56 to 44%. It was pretty It was pretty close. Yeah, yeah there's only a couple votes that separated. So, um, but the, uh, the pet tropicals, uh, fun and a cousin to the one near and dear in my heart, the Atlantic spotted dolphin, which we already did. So if you want to check out that podcast, go back, uh, many weeks ago, uh, we did the Atlantic spotted dolphin. So they're kind of closely related. Um, but, uh, we are going to be doing the pan tropical spotted today and we know there's... A good amount we know, but there's also a good amount we don't know, and we'll talk about why that is. Um, but we do know some cool stuff. So Kat's going to start us off with uh, kind of where they are, what they look like, which is pretty cool, and where they're at. Yeah, so let's start out with where you can find these guys, first of all. So they're basically found in temperate, subtropical, or tropical waters worldwide which I actually, I have to say, I didn't realize their distribution was quite that wide. Um, so that was kind of interesting. I really didn't, I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, I thought them more like, like not isolated, but like there's like one chunk that's where they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So basically, I mean, they can be found in, in temperate to tropical waters worldwide. Um, and they're also found both coastally and offshore. So it seems like depending on the population and where they're based, um, you can either find them just within, you know, a few miles of the coast, or they can be like hundreds of miles offshore. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's kind of an interesting distribution where they don't seem to be hugely related to specific depths, like we've seen with certain cetaceans. Yeah, they, they do do. We'll um, but, talk about it a little bit, but they do do some movement, but it's not well known. Yeah, and it just I think it's just kind of more like where they happen to be. They just adapt to that particular environment, which is interesting. Well, this is um, yeah. So there are lots of different stocks, as you might imagine. We'll get into that a little bit with the status. Um, but, you know, basically in order to manage their populations, they, you know, they've been split into a bunch of different stocks, depending on where they are. And in terms of what they look like, these guys are relatively small for dolphin species. They're about six to seven feet long and approximately 250 pounds at adult weight. Um, they are very slender. Yeah. So their bodies are slender and their beaks are also slender, which we'll get into with the fun fact about their latin name because nope. we know that i like to do latin names um <laughs> very, it's very pointy it's very it's like, very pointy yeah so that's one of the that's one of the main things you can tell the uh, the pantropical spotted dolphin is it is a little bit longer and more slender and they their beak actually has a little white tip on it so it almost looks like they're wearing white lipstick it's kind of funny yeah the, uh, and if you want to compare it because again the atlantic and, and pantropical spotted dolphins are very closely related but if you look at them, like their beaks are very different. The, the mm -hmm. beak of the Atlantic spotted dolphin is much more rounded and just kind of normal looking. And then the, the pantropical is much more slender. So it's, it's pretty easy to tell the difference in that regard. Between yeah, if you have them side by side. Yeah. 
Um, like their cousins, the Atlantic spotted dolphins, they do have this distinctive spotting pattern that accumulates with age. So very similar to the Atlantic spotted dolphin, the calves are actually born a light gray and they accumulate these spots as they age. I did see one thing and I could not verify this, but I did see one thing that said that there's a group of pan pantropical spotted dolphins off of Mexico where the adults don't have spots. Yeah. Yeah. No, they range the, the, the amount of spotting patterns that each population has varies from like normal, totally spotted to not at all. <laughs> Which <laughs> is just crazy. So there's some, so we were, were with the Atlantic spotted dolphin, we were kind of wondering that too. And, and we do have some bottomless dolphins that have spots in their bellies, like the uh, Tercyopsiduncus down in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's some thought that some of the spotting comes from um, being in more shallow waters for oh. uh, camouflage type thing. Right. Um, but we're still not sure because there's there's some that have them and some that don't. It's like the sneeches. There's some have stars in their bellies and some have don't have any. It's my favorite Dr. Seuss book. Uh, so it's I, I don't think we don't have a clear understanding of why that variation exists because it's not clear cut like oh offshores have less and coastals have more. It's right it's not clear. So Interesting. Kind of, yeah. Hmm. But like to, to be a spotted dolphin without spots. What is? <laughs> I know. Yeah. That's that's really crazy. Um, so the other main thing with their appearance is just that they do have a darker sort of what they call the cape coloration on their back. So it basically starts at the head, at the head point and then stretches back towards the peduncle. Um, so that's another just sort of coloration difference. I think it's um, cool that they have a cape. I, mean, I know, just to have a cape. And they're basically wearing white lipstick. I'm like, these yeah. guys are pimped out. Right? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so basically that's kind of the appearance of these guys like you said they, they're very similar to the atlantic spotted but if you do place them side by side really the main telltale is going to be that beak shape and just a little bit more of a slender body as well and i'll i'll say that the spots are different so i was looking at some mm -hmm. pentacle spotted dolphin pictures from a friend which i'll talk about a little bit later but um their spots are so thin and tiny they're like they're, they're like very flex. fine they're very mm -hmm. flex. but this atlantic spotted dolphins are like giant chunkers <laughs> so the spotting pattern itself um, i mean maybe not when you get to the fused one when they're just coloration patterns might be a little bit harder but definitely again with their slender body and their lipstick they are they are more refined i guess maybe than the atlantic spotted <laughs> yeah it's interesting yeah so that's what i had for their appearance and where you can find them okay it's funny too that they're just I, I I think I think of them more in the Pacific, but they're in the Atlantic too. Like they're mm -hmm. everywhere, and I never really thought about it. Yep, yep, <laughs> crazy. We actually got to see some um, on our crossing to the Gulf, uh, crossing the Gulf Stream, going out to the Bahamas for our work. Uh, oh, nice. Some came to the bow, and it was that was very very cool. They loved That's the bow, which I'll talk about in a minute. <laughs> so with their on that their behavior, <clears throat> they are very gregarious so these guys um will be often seen in groups of several hundred to thousand uh, animals and i've always wanted to see a group that size like, i know me too just looks like it's bubbling with dolphins um and and they can they can be in smaller groups some um, i think the average in hawaii is something like 45 um that's the average uh, so some some populations will have a little bit smaller but they're generally they're 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 pretty they got a lot of friends and they like to hang out with their friends and they're not found by themselves. Um, so, uh, and they do say that there's not that much on their social structure that I could find, probably because um, the photo ID hasn't been done quite as much on these animals, probably because they're in groups of like a thousand. So mm -hmm. <laughs> that'd be pretty, 
difficult, but I'll talk more about that with the Hawaii dolphins in a minute. But um, so there, they do say that there was, there was some with the, um, they observed pods of them in relation to the tuna fisheries, which I know you will get into as to why we have so many issues with these guys. But a lot of the information that we do have comes from that because they do associate with tuna and they have observed them in these, these groups and whatnot. Um, and we don't know why they associate with tuna. They just do, <laughs> as far as I know. Uh, <clears throat> but they, they did say that the, the groups changed throughout the day. So they might find a group, one group, and maybe have an ID to animal or something, and now it's in a different group. So I think similarly to Atlantic spotted dolphins, uh, they have these probably relationships that are some that stay you know more consistent, but then they change throughout the day, just like, just like humans do. But the details of that, we are unknown. Um, so they're very social with themselves and they're also very social with other species. <laughs> so like I said, with the, the tuna, for whatever reason, they just love them, um, but also other dolphin species. So they'll be seen with, uh, um, for example, rough toothed dolphins, short finned pilot whales, spinner dolphins um, are often seen together. So they, um, they've got lots of friends out there in the cetacean world. Yeah, um, social butterflies. Mm -hmm. And again, we don't really know why. Like, why does why does that species in particular like to hang out with other species when others don't? And are they both willing participants? Right. I was just going to say that's the thing where it's like, are they intentionally doing that? Or are they just kind of in proximity? And there's so many of them that it, they just kind of overlap. And they're like, oh, hey, you're here too. Whatever. Right. <laughs> or like they go, I'm like, we're going to be friends with you right now. So pilot whales with you. Right. Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so where they're, um, so along that with behavior, they are very fast swimming and agile. So like I said, they love to bow ride and wake ride when we saw them on the boat. I mean, it's just, it's spectacular watching them bow ride and just their, their ability to just fling around and these boats going very fast, um, is pretty impressive. Um, that they'll frequently perform acrobatic displays. So them flying, you know, flying, breaching out of the water, uh, it's really common leaps and side slaps, um, and the, but they're, the one catch to all that is that they, so they, a lot of them like to bow ride and wake ride, except in the Eastern tropical Pacific, which Kat will talk about, um, they specifically avoid boats for reasons you can probably figure out. Um, but other ones that don't have that pressure uh, are much more amenable to hanging out with boats. Um, they, so uh, as I mentioned before, the migratory routes are unknown, but in different populations, it is does seem that they move inshore in fall and winter and then offshore in the spring and summer. Um, but I think there are others that basically stay more coastal, others that stay more offshore. Um, so it just depends on the population. I think there's a lot of variation mm -hmm. uh, in the species depending on where they are. So for example, yeah. the, the ones around the Hawaiian Islands, um, I think there are definite like, there's one guy's here and there's guys over there uh, and they're kind of different. Um, but we're it just, there's just not been enough research on the different populations. The one thing I will say that I was noticing, apparently the Hawaiian islands, they do actually have this, what they're calling like subpopulations where they're mm -hmm. genetically distinct between the different islands. Yeah. Um, exactly. which is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I had that, yeah. A note in there. Um, and then also uh, along with that, um, there's new photo ID work that corroborates that, that says Ooh. that there is long-term site fidelity. So our, our friend up here is, helped, is working with that, with the like Cascadia Research Collective that are um, doing that. They do a lot of work down in Hawaii. Um, and she's been going through the photos. Um, and, you know, I looked on their website too, and they do say that they, they do show long-term site fidelity. And I believe it was something like 
15 or 20 years that they have a matching wow. picture for. So that's um, cool. Yeah, it's, it's, they, they, it does, and that goes along with the genetically distinct stocks, right? So they're staying where they're at around whatever island they like, and they're not trans going between the different ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk about that in the new research too. There's some other stuff in other areas that is interesting about that mm. as well. Intriguing. So, yeah. So I think there's, like I said, I think there's some that just hang out in the one spot and other ones that maybe more um, migratory, which I, you know what is honestly kind of similar to what we're look seeing with harbor porpoises, where in some locations, it does seem that they have these areas that they just stay at versus others like over in Europe, where it does seem to a bigger like inshore offshore migration of the whole population. Mm-hmm. Um, but we need more research to really figure that all those details out. Um, so vocals, vocally, um, they, I don't have too much on that. They have very, they're, they're dolphins. Uh, they, they have whistles, clicks, and buzzes. Um, but what's interesting about the whistles is that they're, is that they are similar, but slightly higher in frequency than other Stenella species. So this is a Stenella attenuata. Um, so they, I guess they have to, they have to stand out against the other Stenellas. Well, and I'm wondering too, I mean, typically frequency of pitch increases with smaller body size so I'm also mm. wondering they are a little bit smaller so not, well, I mean not, not a ton but not with Atlantic spotted dolphins they're they're kind true. of similar size they're, I mean not that yeah. much different that it would really do it but I mean who knows yeah, I mean it could be that true. a couple centimeter difference makes a huge difference vocally yeah <laughs> where you get the squeakier you are <laughs> maybe maybe it's just in their vocal cords maybe <laughs> right there you go there you go but the bursa is just like really tight so it's like um so they uh generally will uh, they're kind of like spinner dolphins in how they use uh deeper water um and that in daytime they are in more shallow water between and by shallow i mean 300 to 1000 feet deep you know it's all relative uh and that at night they dive in deeper waters to feed and i'll go into that a little bit more with the feeding um in a minute, minute but that does and that spinner uh, spinner dolphins do that that they rest in the shallows and they go offshore at night so um that is uh, very similar. Um, so with the kind of the group composition or social, not social structure, but just like, what are the groups look like? You know, whether males, females, adults, juveniles. Um, and these are from captured schools and first nets. Cause again, that's one where they can easily see what's going on. Um, and this is a lot of this information is from um, uh, Perrin who, who's done a lot of work on on the species, but they're older papers, so there hasn't been um, updates that I could find. Um, but they they have these larger schools that have subgroups that are divided into cow-calf pairs, adult males, or juveniles. Now there is fluidity in that composition, right? Again, so there's they can move in in and out of those groups, but they but short term they are stable units. So they tend to hang out together. You know, they may mix, but those little subgroups are pretty um, distinct. Uh, at least in the short term. Um, so in the Eastern Tropical Pacific, they had immature and subadult males and females that form small schools um, or join spinner pod schools, spinner, pod, spinner dolphin schools. Um, and again, that's what you're young, you're not breeding yet. So yeah, I guess go have some fun with some other species. Um, the reproductively resting, which I thought was a fun term, which means you're not pregnant or lactating uh, for mm. a female. Um, those reproductively resting females occur mainly in schools with no adult males. So they're like, I'm not ready yet, or I'm not, I'm not doing it. So I'm going to hang over here without any guys. Have girl time. Right. Don't, don't pester me. <laughs> right, exactly. 
Uh, and then other schools contain a large amount of cow-calf pairs, and that's fairly normal uh, to have bigger group sizes and have females and calves together because it's hard to raise calves, and it's good to have help. Um, and then juveniles often occur in discrete small schools separate from the larger schools of breeding adults and nursing calves. So it's like the kids' table at Thanksgiving, where <laughs> like you kids go over there, you hang out, adults are going to be over here doing their thing. <laughs> So I thought that was kind of cool that they could see that from, um, uh, from those observations. Mm -hmm. um, and then I have a, a fun fact. As we get into diet, um, I have a little fun fact about their speed. Um, they had a trained spotted dolphin that was trained to chase a winch that to, uh, towed a lure uh, on a boat. Um, and it reached top speeds of 11 meters per second in two seconds. Whoa. And the peak output of pay power occurred um, a second and a half after start. So they're like zero to 60 in one and a half seconds. Basically. Wow. Yeah. It was pretty impressive. And then uh, the radio shack animal, uh, they had one that went a hundred and hundred point five kilometers in 13 hours at average speeds of 2.3 to 10.7 knots with bursts exceeding 12. Wow. So that's fast. wild. Yeah. That's pretty fast for a dolphin. I mean, and you know, they're race cars, right? I mean, they're, they're slender. They're, you know, mm -hmm. they're ready to go. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting how quickly they can, yeah. especially how quickly they can get going. Right. Mm -hmm. A powerful tail, really. That's what that's, what that says. Um, and the dives, those dives, they had about three to 3.4 minutes. So for, so what they do when they feed, um, is that they, and it was funny, I, I couldn't immediately find a list of things that they fed on. <laughs> I had to go to find an actual, uh, you know, a paper that uh, had listed it from 1998. Um, but it, it, there's some variation in what they say they eat. So um, some say they eat epipelagic, others mesopelagic, so little guys uh, versus the ones at the surface. Um, cephalopods and fish, I mean, that's pretty common that they, they eat fish and, and octopus and squid and things like that or at least squid, probably. Um, and sometimes crustaceans, that's added in there. Um, but it, yeah, who says they feed on what is a little bit varied. Um, but I'll, I will have in the, in the new research some some stuff that lends more towards the idea that it's probably more the mesopelagic because they follow the deep scattering layer. Mm, okay, I was going to say, well, and the thing is, like, it makes sense, especially if they're like, they're living in such different environments, like the different populations of pantropical spotted dolphins right. are living in different depths, or they're living coastally or offshore, or, like, right. so it makes sense that their diet wouldn't be consistent, necessarily. Yeah, if you're living on more generally shallower waters, there's not going to be as much of a deep scattering layer to go feed on, which would right. make it at more surface, um, or possibly benthic, if you're in shallow enough water. Right. Um, so yeah, so that's probably where some of that variation comes in. Um, in, uh, in the 1998 Eastern Tropical Pacific paper, this was 56 species of fish, 36 species of cephalopods. So they're, they're opportunistic. They'll eat whatever, whatever they can. Um, most frequent fish was lanternfish, and the most frequent cephalopod mm. was a flying squid, which I want to know. I want to like, see one. I know. Just, but they're not going to fly out of the water because they're like, you know, in the middle of the water column. But like, I want to see a flying squid. Why is it called a flying That's squid? That's so cool. Yeah. But those are both mesopelagic. So the vast majority, and that was like over 50% or like 40 and 50% of their diet were those two things. So, uh, and then in that study, it, they found that they, I'm not sure exactly how they did this, but 
they found that they had full stomachs and more full, more full stomachs in the morning hours, indicating they're feeding at night on that deep scattering layer and then resting during the day. Right. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and the deep scattering layer is this uh, a big giant thing of organisms that goes down and up in the water column based on night. So at dusk, they'll start coming back up to go towards the light to feed on the phytoplankton and stuff up there. And then when it gets the sun comes back up, they go back down. Um, so, uh, and, and similar to what you just said, they did find significant differences in the prey composition by season and geographic region. So again, you know, a lot of it's where they are at, but it just shows how flexible they are and are opportunistic feeders, um, which mm -hmm. is good for them in the long term of climate change and everything else that's going on. They, they will mm -hmm. be less impacted than other species. Um, and this was really interesting looking at um, the diets of pregnant and lactating female dolphins, uh, which is kind of redundant. I guess I don't have to say female because males can't be pregnant or lactating. But <laughs> um, in one study, they showed that the uh, lactating females increase both the proportion of squid in their diet and quantity of food consumed. So how much they eat, that makes sense because lactating actually costs you more energetically than pregnancy. Um, but the squid, like I, I'm assuming maybe the squid has more fat, more oil or something. Maybe, uh, yeah. Or easier to catch, maybe, I don't know. Um, and then in another one, it said pregnant females fed more on squid and nursing females on more on fish. So that's a different, mm -hmm. that's the opposite. So I don't know. Right, um, interesting. Yeah, so. Um, and then again, in Hawaii, they did some studies and they showed at night, they were deeper dives, mean of 57 meters, max of 213 meters. So roughly like 600 feet. Um, and their swim velocity increased after dark. Again, they're going after stuff um, versus the day, which was a 12.8 meters and a max of 122 meters. Um, similar to what they found with Eastern tropical Pacific <clears throat> um, ones that they had tagged. And so those diving patterns do indicate that they're following that deep scattering layer from dusk to dawn feeding and not full feeding during the day. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me, my goodness. Um, so I think it's interesting though, that one found one thing and the other found, you know, lactating females feed more on squid and then the other one found they fed more on fish. But that may have something to do with where they're at, right? So what mm -hmm. fish exact species they're eating or are available to them, maybe the squid in one area is better than in the other and so, they pick that one in one area versus the other because of that. Right. Yeah. So, a lot of variation. Mm -hmm. um, so just quickly, reproduction. Um, they okay. So this is great. I have that they mature at eleven, at six to eight years, or nine to eleven years for females, and twelve to fifteen years for males. So basically, somewhere in around there. Somewhere <laughs> around there, and I I would lend more towards the eleven. Uh, and then the 9 to 11 and 12 to 15, because 11 was from NOAA, and the 9 to 11 and 12 to 15 was from Perrin's paper um, back in the day. So I, I think that, and it it's not uncommon for males to mature a little bit later, um, mm -hmm. especially socially, <laughs> to be able to do things. Um, they did all agree, though, that mating and calving occurs year-round, which I thought was interesting, because normally mm. there's peaks, right? And, right. But it, they, apparently they can do it whenever. Um, I gestation, hmm? Oh, I was just going to say that that's kind of would make this with the, um, with the water temperatures though. I mean, I'm just thinking like they're not living in a, in a polar area where they're dealing with True. sea ice or having to navigate around that. Like if you're living in the tropics, it might be a little bit different 
But Atlantic um, Spotted Dolphins pressure. So and and oh, that's true. Right, they're, they're not. Yeah, yeah, they just have one peak season. So I don't know. Huh. It's yeah, intriguing. Yeah, um, and it, gestation is around eleven months. Um, lactation lasts for two years, but can be as few as one. And at three to six months old, the calves will start to eat solid food. Um, and then calving interval depends on the population. Some it's from two point five up to four years. Um, and that's similar to Atlantic Spotted Dolphins. It's usually three to four years. Two maybe between two and four years. Um, and yeah, that's what I got for reproduction. So, uh, and behavior. Uh, so they're pretty uh, interesting, though we still have a lot to learn about them, especially the variation that they show in these different populations. Yeah. Why? Why is it? Why? Why? It's a big question. <laughs> um, so we will get back to the threats and then some cool new research after this break. And we are back. So Kat, let's get into uh, a little bit about the Eastern Tropical Pacific population. That has yeah, let's, <laughs> let's do it. So first of all, let's talk about just the general status of the pantropical spotted dolphins. So honestly, I couldn't find like a great estimate of their worldwide population, I think just because they are so widely distributed. But um, the IUCN had an of between two to 2.5 million. Um, That's so, so different than the rest I of mean, ones that we talk about. Sort of, I know, I know. Well, no, so this is the thing. So basically it seems like they're actually on the whole, the population wise, they're actually doing fairly well. Um, I did see one source that said they are actually the second most abundant cetacean after the bottlenose dolphin. I'm not sure that that's still accurate. I think that was from a few years ago, um, but higher than I was anticipating actually um in terms of their overall numbers as far as we know and this is great but this is actually like literal millions yes less than there were in say like the 1950s which we'll get into in just a second mm -hmm. um so they are protected by the Marine mammal protection act throughout their range and the pacific northeastern offshore stock is listed as depleted under the marine mammal protection act um and we will get into why now. So talking <laughs> about- you can all guess what it is. Hint, hinting towards, <laughs> I know, hinting towards for a while. So number one threat is entanglement. Um, so as Cindy mentioned, they associate strongly with tuna. And especially as a smaller dolphin species, they are particularly susceptible to bycatch because it's just, they're, they're more likely to get caught in the nets, number one. And then it's a little bit harder for them to get out of the nets than again, if they're actually trying to escape. Um, so pantropical spotted dolphin bycatch was actually one of the main reasons that dolphin-friendly tuna was initiated, that whole movement to, to move towards how do we stop catching dolphins in these nets that when we're catching tuna. The majority of that was because they were catching so many pantropical spotted dolphins, like literally millions every single year. Yeah. Um, well, and they, they were they... just tossed up. They were just, what were you going to say? Yeah, they, that they, they, they would, the person used the dolphins to find the tuna. Yeah, I was just going to say that. So, um, yeah, so basically the, the reason, so again, like Cindy mentioned earlier, they associate with tuna. We don't really fully understand that association, but from what I was reading, the tuna actually aggregate beneath the schools of dolphins. So they don't know if the tuna are kind of using the dolphins as some kind of a like barrier or like, hey, we're going to hide in your ship, you know, similar to how, how uh, fish will school underneath boats, right? It's, oh, yeah. a, it's some sort of like safety mechanism. So that's possible. Um, clearly, it doesn't work very well for the tuna because <laughs> the fishermen will use the dolphins to find where the tuna are, and then we'll just scoop them all up in the net. 
Well, that's um, interesting too because we, you know, we're talking about why the dolphins associate with the tuna, but maybe it's the tuna associating with the dolphins. You know, like, right? So, so the way that I was like, what I was reading was more the opposite. It was more the tuna associating with the dolphins than the dolphins necessarily following the tuna. Um, although again, could be feeding on similar fish. Who knows? I mean, tuna are are you know large fish too. Like they might be feeding on similar similar things. So who knows? Um, but basically that's what would happen. They'd get these big purse seine nets and they'd encircle the dolphins knowing that there's tuna underneath. And then they just scoop them all up in the net. Hopefully some of the dolphins can maybe jump out. But again, like I said, millions were, were being bycaught every single year. Um, and actually the, one of the estimates that I read for the, for the Northeastern offshore stock specifically, um, this is one of the main, or well, this is the main cause of their, their decline. And it's thought that over the 25 year period from about the 1960s, um, through to the kind of early 80s, about 75% of that region's population were killed due to bycatch. Good Lord. Yeah, like literally millions of, of animals being caught in this. It's it's wild. It's so frustrating too because it's like, okay, I get that you want to catch the thing below, but once you realize that, like, can't you think about a different way to catch it so that you're like not killing all these other things for no reason? Like, I just can't imagine trying to catch something and then killing something else and be like, Meh, whatever, toss it overboard and don't care. Like, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a hard one to comprehend, honestly. Um, so again, you know, this was really one of the main reasons why the dolphin friendly tuna movement was initiated to, to utilize different methodologies so that the dolphins can escape from the net so that they're using, you know, they, they do a like a, and they call it like a drag where they'll actually like dip one side of the net so the dolphins can leave. Yeah. Um, not using persanes, using other other methods. I will say, um, just as an aside, which um, dolphin friendly tuna does not mean that no other species are killed in the catching of tuna. I will or say that. Dolphins. So, or even dolphins. So, just to bear that in mind, if you are someone who loves your tuna, um, just be conscious of that. That although it's it's of course better than than buying non dolphin friendly tuna um a lot of other species are also bycaught especially if they're using drag nets which actually go along the bottom so then you're getting a lot of benthic species you're getting shark species you're getting other fish um crustaceans like there's a lot of there's a lot of um impact that this fishery has on other species so just something if you were trying to be a conscious consumer, just something to be aware of just because it has dolphin friendly on the label does not mean that it's actually great for other species including dolphin yeah because even the the dolphin safe means that there's a certain limit that they get to it doesn't mean that there's no dolphins killed it means it's under the limit that they're allowed correct exactly which is again still better <laughs> right yeah exactly it's it's hopefully down from millions of animals to thousands right. but still it's it's again it's just something to be conscious of i think we all tend to see labels like that and go oh it's it, it, it's, it's safe. safe we're all set mm -hmm. and again with the best of intentions because we're trying to be aware of what we're purchasing but i think a lot of times we don't realize we're not told what the impact is on other species as well. So yeah. just an well, and, aside there. And the less uh, charismatic species, right? Nobody yeah. cares as much about a shark or a lobster than they do at all. Yeah. And actually some of the dolphin friendly tuna fishing methods are way more harmful for all the other species. So the catch of dolphins goes down, but the catch by catch of other species goes massively up. So it's just, again, just something to yeah. be aware of. Um, the other impact that fisheries has is a little bit more indirect. So there have been, um, impacts on on reproduction observed in pantropical spotted dolphins so it's thought that the fishing activity may interrupt the, the reproductive behaviors it could have a negative result on um, calf survival or birth rates um, obviously increasing stress levels of the mother they might be separating mothers and calves 
so that's another kind of indirect effect, not just mortality right away, but also just how it impacts the, the basically the family structures of these animals. Yeah. So I actually have, the, the, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I'm going to tell you about one of the new research that I saw. Oh yeah. This is interesting. And it's not necessarily new. It's from 2013, but um, they did blubber biopsy samples to look at pregnancy rates. And they found that 11.5% were pregnant, um, but the pregnant females exposed to less fishery activity um, were Pregnant females were exposed to less fishery activity, suggesting that the fishery may have an inhibitive effect on pregnancy. Um, so that they're basically not getting pregnant because so many are being taken out of the population or whatever. And spatial analysis indicated that pregnancy was more um, aggregated than random and that the highest proportion of the pregnant uh, females in the mouth of the Gulf of California, and that's an area with relatively low reported fishery activity. So again, emphasizing that, that, that indirect effect of fisheries on reproduction that can in long-term have bad impacts on population. Right. Well, especially if you're, if you're taking millions of animals out of a population and they're right. not then able to become pregnant or maintain pregnancy, um, it's, yeah, that's a major issue for population right. levels. And again, like I said, this isn't just behavioral changes. This is also like hormonal changes in the animals, just like people, if yes. you're, if you're chronically stressed, you are unlikely to be able to successfully maintain a pregnancy because your body is in fight or flight the entire time. Um, and that's not a safe environment to raise a child in no. dolphin world or in the human world. So it's uh, it's really important to think about some of those more indirect effects as well. Yeah, and we see that with the SRKWs up here, the Southern residents, you know, the, their pregnancy rates are really low and some of that is like their stress levels are just high all the time because they're mm -hmm. not getting food. And if you're worried about getting caught in nets all the time, it's you're not gonna be like, eh, bring a baby into this world it'd be totally right fine. yeah you know, just energetically yeah yeah i mean like but you're by like you know they're not thinking that but they're biologically your body's like nope that's not gonna happen right now yep exactly yeah. um so some other threats that these guys are facing um there is still active hunting of the pantropical spotted dolphin that occurs mostly in parts of asia indonesia the philippines and, and other parts of the pacific so some of the pacific islands um again that's typically not we're not talking millions of animals for the most part it's usually hundreds um but again that is still just they are still hunted for meat mm -hmm. um and then also we've talked about this on other podcasts as well but feeding and and harassment of animals so specifically this was really talking about the hawaiian islands which i think is where this has been observed the most commonly um because these guys are really very very commonly seen around the hawaiian islands i think they said that it was like the second most frequently seen marine species it i know and with the cascadia stuff it's the one the <clears throat> it's the most common one that they see they have like okay. 600 observations in a couple of years like it's they see them all the time yeah, yeah. So, and again, the Hawaiian islands, of course, are highly, highly visited by tourists. And mm. if you're going to Hawaii, one of the main things that you're sold is that you want to see marine mammals, right? That's partly why people go to Hawaii oftentimes. So basically their human interactions are happening very frequently and feeding of wild dolphins by tourists is becoming quite a problem. Um, yep. Uh-huh. Which again, you know, I saw when I was in Australia too, is, is when yeah. you're in proximity to people and you're, you're it's again, it's often not, it's not meant with harm typically, but it's just, you're, you're on vacation. You're having this really cool experience with an animal. You have something on your boat. Oh, toss it to the animal. They'll yeah. love it. And of course, as we've talked about before with this, you know, the behavior of, of begging of, of animals, following boats, actively looking for food um, that's passed down to their calves that also, you know, puts them at greater risk of, you know, in danger if people decide that they are going to harm the animal, but also just from propeller strike and all kinds of things and, and really not looking out for predators either. Um, 
So that's becoming more and more of an issue as well as document harassment of actual, you know, of animals as well. Um, so just something that they are, of course, you know, taking action on in around Hawaii, but it is something that as we, as our population continues to grow and spread, we are interacting more and more with these marine species. Um, and it seems like a lot of people are kind of forcing that interaction with the pantropical spotted dolphins. That's so. unfortunate. Yep, really it is. That, but it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's, even well, you know, you're well-intentioned, but like, it's just don't feed the, don't feed the other animals. Don't feed the deer. Don't feed the dolphins. Don't feed anything. It's yeah. not helping them in any regard. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think, you know, we get so excited to, to have a special experience ourselves mm -hmm. and it's, we, we don't always think it all the way through and don't think about how that is going to then impact on the animal. Right. Um, and I've heard so many people who feed animals, they're like, oh, they love it. What are you talking about? They love it. I'm like, no, now it's a trained behavior. They're just right. used to it. Well, yeah. Well, and, and now <laughs> what happens when you don't go with food and now they've either forgotten or they don't forage as well. And, and now what happens, you know? Right. Right. So mm -hmm. it's just, it's not advised, not advised. No. No. Um, but anyway, that was, that was the, what I had for the threats. Um, so I will, I will add on to that just real quickly, the, yeah. the, the fishing interaction. So with that photo ID study, they are also looking at fishery interactions and documenting the, how often they have uh, gear issues or like, you know, scars from, um, gear or fishing lines or things like that. And they, you know, I, I don't know they, what they're, what they've come up with yet, but they're looking at it and it, you know, I, I would be surprised if they didn't find certain populations with higher rates of, of marks and, and gear entanglement scars, um, based on mm -hmm. where they're at and how often they interact with people and the fishing lines and stuff like that. So that is interesting. Yeah. Another, and, and another good thing of what, what photo ID can do besides just tell you about where the animals are, they can tell you this kind of threats that they're going into. And if you have a high proportion that have scars from it that may mean that there's a larger larger amount that have just died because not everybody mm -hmm. survived with scars so yeah um, well i think it's again it's it's similar to when we were talking about the manatees you know the, the more yeah. you understand the impacts and the interactions that these animals are having with humans the better we can then be prepared to try to conserve and manage them exactly. you know if you know that that x x percent of the population has scars from fishing entanglement you might need to put some more focus there Right. And again, where do we put the money and where do we put the time, right? You put it into those where it is more of a problem for that population rather than a blanket thing all the way around, which may not even work because the different populations are doing different things. So you really have to be, it's again, that really population specific, knowing about the local animals that are there and understanding what they do to better protect them and other populations by not doing the same thing over there that won't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so Okay, well, that is very good, <clears throat> and hopefully, um, we can be better <laughs> about things. And and note, don't feed wild animals. Um, so uh, I have a, a few interesting papers, and I had to stop at some point because I just, there's there's more, there's more I'm sure. Um, but there was in 2021 there was a paper about the first birth of a spotted dolphin in captivity. Yeah, cool. which I didn't I didn't realize there was any in captivity. <laughs> Um, the gestation was 352 days, so that's almost 12 months over the 11 months that uh, was average. Um, and this is kind of some gooey details, but the time from vaginal discharge to fluke appearance, right? So that's when you first know, okay, she's going to have a baby. And then the fluke comes out was five and a half hours. Oh, Wait, it gets worse. Because then now the tail's just sticking out and it sticks out for a while. Stick out for four more hours before the birth, it was actually born. Wow. <laughs> I was like, 
that's already a nine and a half hour labor right yeah wow (laughs) and then um and i was like do you mean just swimming around with with poops sticking out of there for four hours it seems wildly uncomfortable but (laughs) i mean at least with human birth like once the head's out it, it goes pretty quickly after that like it's all you know before yeah, so I don't couldn't imagine you know swimming around with a fluke sticking out there for that long. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> it is. Um, and then it was it took four hours before it nursed for the first time, and then the placenta was like an hour later. So it's a pretty long day. And again, imagine doing that in the wild, like just thinking about like predation and things like that. Yeah, I know, know like right? Trying to, trying to be safe from sharks and whatnot while you're giving birth for yeah. nine hours. Right. I think it'd be pretty quick. Like, okay, everything goes out, and then you can get away from it. So the other. <laughs> think it's yeah pretty crazy so that was very interesting um in 2016 there was some uh uh, information on the whistle characteristics in daytime and dive behavior in hawaii so again a lot of this information comes from hawaii because they are more well studied than some of the other places um but the mean dive depth and duration was 16 meters and 1.9 minutes so short shallow dives in the upper 10 meters of water um, and then combined with few foraging buzzes indicates that little feeding behavior occurs during the day. So again, going back to that, they follow the deep scattering layer um, at night and don't feed much during the day. Um, but that was one of the first successful DTAG deployments or DTAG-3 deployments on a small pelagic dolphin. Mm. Yeah. Very cool. Um, this one was really interesting. In 2020, they're looking at um, PBDEs, so the like PCBs kind of thing, like the pollution. Um, on dolphin, um, uh, on dolphins, like how does it affect them? Because that is, um, uh, uh, they are top predators, so it can you know accumulate. So they're looking at um, uh, that biomagnification and stuff. And they, but they did it. They have an immortal cell line from pentacle spotted dolphins. I know. What does that mean? I mean, so it's like when, so the, you know, the, the research that gets done on the, the Henrietta Lacks uh, cancer cell line, like that's yeah. immortal, it just keeps going. So they've had that for like 50 years. So they somehow have cells from oh. the spotted dolphins that they, that are immortal and they just keep proliferating them. What? Right? That so they, is so cool. They establish fibroblast cell lines, which is the beginning of muscle fibers. Um, uh, they were obtained from pantropical spotted dolphins, uh, and they use that as an in vitro model for assessing the toxicological implications of chemical pollutants on dolphins. So instead of like taking blubber samples and saying about all these different things, they can actually just pump, pump this, these cells in the petri dish full of the chemicals and see what happens. That is the coolest thing ever. Right? I thought that, I'm like, I didn't know we had any mortal cell lines from other animals like that, like wow. dolphins. Um, so they looked at the immune stimulation effect of these PBDEs um, via prostaglandins signal pathways to better understand the immunotoxicity pathway of like, basically how it affects them um, in dolphins. And the results, basically the results without too much uh, jargon, the results showed that the PBDEs stimulate an innate immune response. So something that just naturally occurs um, by triggering PGE2 EP's CAMP cytokine signaling. <laughs> So you may have heard about the cytokine storms from all the COVID stuff um, that you, your body just goes, oh my God, and these cytokines get signaled and throughout and can overwhelm your body sometimes. But they're showing that, that, that it does produce a strong immune response that can mm. be detrimental to the animals over the long term. So wow, I thought that was like super, super interesting. <laughs> um, and on that, there's a 2020 study about mercury bioaccumulation. 
So basically, I didn't get to look at too much into this paper, but they were just trying to see basically is bioaccumulation happening in, in them from mercury because they are top of the food chain. Um, so remember biomagnification is the fact that smaller animals eat, get this mercury or whatever pollutant. Other animals eat those animals, other animals eat those, and others eat those, and dolphins eat those. And so as they get up the food chain, they're eating more and more animals that are contaminated and, and the amount of, of chemicals magnify up the food chain. So the top predators will have a lot more. Um, and basically they found, yes, uh, mercury biomagnification is happening in the food chain around Belize, which is where the study was. Um, and they looked at that through mercury concentrations and nitrogen isotopic, uh, isotopic ratios. So we talked about isotopic ratios in another podcast. Um, that's basically looking at the, the isotopes at these different levels of um, the food chain and then correlating that with mercury concentration. So, uh, it, so maybe it's not good to be eating them either. <laughs> if we go back to the threats, right? So certain populations, maybe they're not good for, for meat because they're contaminated. Yeah, like a lot of tuna and stuff too. Yeah. Um, so on to some more distribution stuff. In 2022, they did a Mexican Central Pacific, uh, and they looked at the environmental variability on how they're distributed, um, and they found that they were mainly coastal distribution there, regardless of env environmental conditions. So they these are ones that just like the coast. They preferred warmer conditions. They had higher sighting rates and abundance, and higher distance to the coast during neutral and warm periods. And then during cold periods, their sighting rate decreased and abundance decreased, and they were found closer to the coast where the chlorophyll concentration increased. Oh, so interesting. yeah, there's, they're, they're moving where it's warm and there's good prey because the, you know, chlorophyll is a proxy for phytoplankton, the lower part of the food chain. Um, so it suggests that the changes in the distribution and abundance of these dolphins could be associated with habitat quality that is related to tropical and extratropical of phenomena like El Nino, the blob, um, things like that, which could be changing their foraging activities and where they are, which gotcha. makes sense. Mm -hmm. But you know, they actually showed it. <laughs> so, um, and then in 2021, there was a first record of a common dolphin in Peru. Um, uh, first record, sorry, <laughs> of a pentropical spotted dolphin with common dolphins in Peru. Um, and this was interesting because it's a single animal which is weird because pantropicals are not single creatures. Um, but there was a single animal with large groups of common dolphins in 2016, 2018, and 2019. Now, if it's the same animal, I don't know. I couldn't see that from what I could read of the paper. Um, that would be really interesting. I mean, it would, I think, make more sense if they just, he just got kind of adopted into the- Right, into that's the what bird. I was gonna say. Yeah, yeah but what, what happened? Why is he by himself? Like what's going on? You, you need so the backstory, right? It would be a great like children's book. You know, what happened to this little guy? Um, and then the last one I have, um, and this one goes back to what we're talking about with the islands. This is now not in Hawaii, but in the Eastern Caribbean and the Lesser Antilles at the Agoa Sanctuary. Um, and they looked at residency status and inter-island movements. So this is another place that they are doing photo ID like they do, like they're um, creating the catalog in Hawaii. Um, and they did photo ID from 2018 to 2019 they found no matches between the islands. So there seems to be no regular mixing, but previously there was an unpublished sighting between islands. So again, there's always gonna be those weirdos that are like, I'm going on a walkabout. And you know, they, they go across to the other place, um, but it's probably not happening regularly. So there likely are, like there is in Hawaii, they stick to their island and they don't, don't mix. 
Um, and on that, the populations from both islands showed relatively high site fidelity. Um, one island, it was interesting, one island had one homogenous distribu distribution of the group. So they, they were just one big group that associated with that island. Um, but in this other, in the other island in the Western Antilles, they had two distinct resident groups that didn't mix. Hmm. So again, goes to the variation that we were talking about with these populations. So even in the same area, um, and I'm, I'm sure probably in the Hawaiian Islands, perhaps on, around one island, there's a different kind of residency grouping versus other islands, possibly. Um, but there, there, there definitely is. So there's variation across the whole world in them, and there's variation within a relatively smaller space um, in certain locations, um, yeah. which just makes them fascinating. Super interesting. Yes. Um, so I guess before we wrap up, just have one quick fun fact for you because we have to do the Latin name because oh, we yes. haven't done the Latin name yet. Yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't um, so their Latin name. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think just just learning about them is really interesting. But um, their Latin name is, as Cindy mentioned, it's Stenella attenuata, and Stenella means narrow, and attenuata means tapered. So oh. as we've already talked about, with that long, slender beak and just their their longer, or well, I guess longer, slender body too. Mm -hmm. um, very fitting name for these guys. Yeah. So there you go. Just want to like share that. the Latin name before we before we go. Tapered. Yeah. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and then they kind of taper on both ends, really, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I like it. Very good. It's nice when, they, uh, when the names line up really well with kind of what they are, which it makes sense. Back when they were doing the, you know, giving them the Latin names, a lot of it was just on what they look like. Because right. Yeah. Makes sense. So um, very cool. Well, that is the Pan Tropical Spotted Dolphin. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, make sure to check our Instagram and Facebook page and follow us for the on the next Remember Highlight so you can um, vote on what we do next. And next week, we'll probably have another journal review. We'll find something fun and interesting to, to go over. And um, oh, we have we have the new merch. The new merch Ooh. is here. Very excited. So that will be up on our website um, very, very soon. Um, it's on there. It, it was on there now. Okay, good. Um, yeah. It was in the process. I wasn't sure if we'd gotten there yet. Um, so, uh, it's up there now, so you can click on there. You'll go to a, our bonfire page, which is a, a third party thing that, that produces all the stuff and then they can ship it out to you. Um, and they're super cool designs and we want to thank everybody who's already bought some. Um, there's been some great, great, um, buying being done on, on the website, which is fantastic. We're really glad that you guys are enjoying it. So please check those out. We have four different designs. We have t-shirts, sweatshirts, cup, uh, mugs, tote bags. Um, all sorts of fun stuff for you guys. So check it out. And all the money does go back to support the research and these uh, things like this, the podcast and the education stuff that we do uh, to share with you guys. So check that out. Uh, keep up with us on Facebook and Instagram. And with that, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. This was brought to you by Pacific Mammal Research, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. To learn more about the species we discuss, check out our blog. Head to our website, www.pacmam.org, that's P-A-C-M-A-M.org, to check it out. Also, help us continue providing fun and educational content like this by donating today. Your help is how we can continue to do our work and share it with you. Thanks.